Good evening. You are listening to Through Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we welcome back Through Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Good evening, everyone. We also have Games Beats librarian in residence, Rowan Kaiser. <laughs> Good morning. And finally, we have freelance writer, young TJ Hafer. Hello. It's his rap name. And this is also, this is the first time Troy and I have ever been on a podcast together. Oh, I'm fuck only off. Ever, that can't be true. No, I'm only yeah. ever on the Paradox episodes. We've never been on the same episode before. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, all right. TJ's coming out of his cage. Uh, <laughs> anyway. anyway. Uh, so on our last show, we talked about myth, uh, the myth series, and myth the fallen lords, and and myth the fallen lords turned twenty about a week or so ago, and that got us thinking about what other games turned twenty this year, and that made us realize that like, holy hell, uh, nineteen ninety seven was a wild year for games, and particularly for strategy games. Now, now, Rowan, you've been thinking about. Uh, the, these sorts of topics, but also this particular era for, for quite a bit. Yeah, um, well, it's also Polygon putting out their list that was pretty mediocre. Oh, you're for so mad online about games. that. <laughs> I'm not actually that mad. Uh, I thought it, mad. It's, a pretty, it's a pretty okay list, all things considered. Uh, I just really wanted to yell about something that wasn't taxes last night. <laughs> that's, that's true. But anyway... Uh, 1997 is a really fascinating year in games uh, for a lot of reasons. I was once even thinking of writing a book about the 90s and how all the video games, the, all the kinds of video games that we played going into the 90s, like totally shifted over the course of the 90s. And in 1997, you're having uh, kind of the golden age of people realizing what's what the new form of games are and... You're getting a bunch of really good, really innovative for the time games that have kind of set up where we are from there in many ways. Um, so the the two big things that are changing games technologically in this era are uh, 3D graphics and CD-ROM capacity. Basically, when games shifted from discs or cartridges to CD-ROMs, game developers suddenly got what seemed to be an infinite amount of space to do whatever the hell they wanted. Uh and 3D graphics helped do all the things that 3D graphics do, and we could talk about whether that's good or not, but uh, that also helped make games a lot more expensive. So in the business realm, those two things, just more space, more expensive, combined to drive out a whole lot of mid-range publishers and kind of set up the giant publisher with smaller studios system that we have today. Uh, Microprose, I think, is gone at this point, and Firaxis is starting up. I think this year has Firaxis's first game, Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Um, I, I could be wrong on it being first, but it definitely has Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Uh, SSI has lost their D&D license, so they're just not relevant for RPGs anymore. They're trying to stay relevant with war games. I think this is like the last year you see a really strong attempt at having mainstream war games. Um, and uh, what is also happening in this year is there's kind of a, especially with PC games, a standardization of interface. Um, the mouse is basically now accepted as the default form of PC gaming. And 
the mouse's standard usage of left click move or re- left click select right click move is pretty well set in stone here so we start getting games that are really able to use the mouse well as opposed to early 90s games where it's just like an alternate keyboard selector thing um and these things all kind of combine to change games culture, uh, especially the big big publishers coming in. What they're doing in this era is uh, they're taking fewer risks, so they're really finding genres that seem to sell and just beating them the hell down. Uh, this is the year of RTS. There's like 50 of them released this year. Um, they're also really exploiting specific demographics. And what you're seeing specifically in this era is... Uh, what they think teenage boys want. Uh, teenage boys are now the default gamers, and they are making games that are fast-paced, they're dark, and they're violent. And, and there's also John a Tiller's making the battlegrounds, Napoleon, <laughs> yeah. Russia, Bull Run, and Prelude to Waterloo. <laughs> yeah, there's also a backlash to this of people who are like, I want the old stuff, and this is also the era of like peak. Real-time is um, for noobs, real-time is for people who can't think, and, uh, you know, all this, all this kind of pushback on the idea of uh, action games, um, console games, and whatever being, you know, dumbed down or that kind of thing. And, you know, a, a couple of years later, we have Paradox coming in and making that clearly not true. And there are a lot of very classic real-time strategy games going on here. But what, there are these like competing trends between um, the cerebral turn-based game and the. Uh, There's like a Grognard uh, rearguard that's, yeah. that's happening. In this era. Right. This is this is the last chance that they think they can really win, um, instead of just being bitter on forums for the next twenty years. Uh, and uh, there's also another thing that's somewhat important if we want to talk about Final Fantasy Tactics, which was released in Japan. I prefer doing history by where games were first released because of the technology associated with them. But this is also the era where, because of these things, there's kind of a backlash to the backlash that has people starting to say, you know, maybe PC games and console games aren't actually that different. Maybe Final Fantasy Tactics is a legit smart strategy tactics game. Um, And this is something that eventually we're going to, like, what will really hit in the 2000s with there are a whole bunch of really strong tactics games on consoles, both Western and Japanese. But uh, this is a trend that you can s- sort of start to see here, with especially with Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah, this this very much does feel like, looking over the list of games that came out this year, to an extent it feels like uh, revisiting old friends, but it's weird to think about like how many of these are new. Uh, in this era this is the year that uh, total annihilation comes out this is the year that age of empires comes out and becomes like uh i'm not sure there was ever been an rts that became more of a household name uh among you know mainstream gamers like people like my dad for instance (laughs) uh played age of empires right like starcraft ever broke through to people like that but age of empires did but the other thing striking thing here is that a lot of um major series from earlier periods in games history are maybe starting to go away a little bit or they're or they're having their last hurrahs right so like uh you know this is the year that wing commander prophecy uh comes out and that entire run of games from chris roberts uh is sort of reaching its end uh as he prepared for his new career in uh Re, uh, space real estate sales. Uh, <laughs> well, first he did bad Hollywood movies, which was clearly his dream making Wing Commander. Look, and then 
okay, but here's the thing. The Wing Commander movie is amazing, and like I watched it last year. It is breathtaking, particularly the part where David Suchet, famous as Hercule Poirot, uh, appears to fake a bad headache and literally walks out of the movie. Uh, it's, it's great. Uh, so is he jazz? <laughs> uh it is it is tremendous uh highly recommended to everyone uh but like the zork series uh zork grand inquisitor comes out this year like a lot of games are trying to sort of transition into this new era you're talking about rowan and some are gonna make it some don't pardon x-wing versus tie fighter XCOM apocalypse ultima online these all fit what you're talking about this sort of end of an era slash possible transition yeah Right, and then you got like it's wild, but like Gran Turismo, I had no, I, I had forgotten that Gran Turismo has been around this long. Uh, but you know, the yep. the the car PG, as our friend Tom Chick uh, likes to call it, really <laughs> starts to make its appearance here. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a fascinating it, it's a fascinating era, and it's a fascinating era uh, for strategy games. And I think to maybe structure the discussion a little bit, because we could just we could just praise the games of 1997 and have a big old 1997 love in. We could do that, uh, but I'd rather <laughs> argue. Uh, and fight, fight, yeah. Fight. And so I, I this is of, the year of Tekken three. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. Uh, it's also the year of Quake two. Uh, so it's it's appropriate awesome. to have a yeah, bit of a death match here. Um. So yeah, I was thinking we could talk about like what is the you know, best real-time strategy game of that year, what's the best grand strategy slash 4X of, of that era, the best war game, uh, best manager or city builder uh, game, and then, and then what's, you know, what's the greatest strategy game of that year, bar none, the, the one that we would, uh, you know, sort of save from save from destruction if 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 games history were being erased, uh, you know, as, as that uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun uh, series would have it. Uh, so... You know, let's 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 dig into this a little bit. I think I think we should start with real time strategy. Um, I have a very strong memory of written in this year, maybe in late '96, uh, like opening a computer gaming world, and they're doing a preview of the 50 upcoming real time strategy games. 50. They did like a full I think preview you have of to just one. Even even at the peak of the the genre, I'm not sure there were. It might not have been a preview. They might have included games like here are the fifty real time strategy games they that might, are you know yeah. being previewed. If, if they're using or polygons, out, if they're using polygons <laughs> definition of real time strategy, okay. you'd probably come up with fifty. Right. Yeah. Everyone stop being mean. Everyone stop being mean <laughs> to Polygon. A lot of people worked uh, worked on that moderately list. hard. Yeah. Uh, no, but seriously. Um, but, yeah. So, no, but, it, but, but it is an important year for the RTS. But it's really the year for the RTS. This is, I think, the high watermark. Uh, it's still pretty early, but it's. I don't think the year ever gets as varied as this year gets for RTSs, with um, Age of Empires, of course, which is my personal favorite because it's historical. Uh, you know, <laughs> it is. It is all of these. Uh, it is. It, it's beautiful. It's got traditional level unit caps, uh, like you have in Warcraft. It's got. Factions that are alike but not quite alike, which I think is not quite not identical, which I think has become the pattern for, you know, nation and faction design throughout many strategy games. It's also you have total annihilation, which goes the other way. It's not small and intimate and bloody. It is large scale of infinite resources and infinite power and vast armies. 
And you have the weirdness of dark rain and the stupidity of crush, kill, and destroy. You have so many uh, different attempts, I think, at this point to steer the RTS in different directions. Um, now, StarCraft is what year? Uh, 99. It's like 98. 90, yes. 98, I think, was the original. Yeah, StarCraft is Brood War, StarCraft's coming out uh, the next year or the year after, and that takes uh, the RTS in the three very solid well-defined, very different factions. Everyone's a, everyone's a rock, everyone's a paper, everyone's a scissors. Um, and that's a lot of fun. But I think this is where you see the RTS try to sort itself out in 97. Now, I was never a total annihilation person. Um, even when it became Supreme Commander, which I liked quite a bit, it never had a lot of personality for me. Though so a lot of people, a lot of my friends... Uh, would point to TA as the RTS of the year, as the landmark title, that its grandiosity and its size and its, you know, sci-fi monster stupidity just overwhelms what I think is um, kind of the small, tight, person-to-person feel I get for killing all the villagers in Age of Empires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 like uh when i was looking at, at this year's list and trying to to figure out which rts i like better it's like my my head says total annihilation but my heart says age of empires is kind of what it came down to um i think total annihilation was the more mechanically interesting game it was the more strategically interesting game but age of empires was such a it's it was the first real historical strategy game i remember getting into which is pretty huge considering how much of my free time and professional life is taken up by historical strategy games now. Um, and even, you know, you, you referred to me at the beginning of the show as the young TJ Hafer. Age of Empires was really the first exposure that the young TJ Hafer got to a lot of these historical contact or concepts. How, how old were you in 97, TJ? I was what? eight years old. Um, See, I, so <laughs> I, 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 I was... I was ABD in graduate school. I've been married for a year. <laughs> Good God. And I got, and I like, got, age, I got Age of Empires hell. as a Christmas gift in 1997. I had never heard of the Hittites before I played Age of Empires. <laughs> like, my, I was American general education system. History starts in 1776. And before that, there were some knights running around at I'm some point. I'm not sure any general history <laughs> that, survey is going to, like, have a long section on the Hittites, if I'm being entirely yeah, honest. Yeah, well, they should. But, and, but. and let's be real. That's basically what Age of Empires says Hittites history is so uh yeah yeah <laughs> true uh, this is uh this is the year i learned to hate the rts um, <laughs> i just thought that was the year you learned to hate and i was like well now, now, <laughs> now, now we have a now we have a moment of your birth i i was i was pro- what a junior in high school a junior slash senior so possibly yes uh but uh it's there's this kind of um standardization of what the rts is as Mm -hmm. what i call the basecraft game um it's what command and conquer and warcraft and starcraft eventually say the rts is which is you know you you have like two resources you build a bunch of buildings you swarm people with units one of those buildings does research one of those buildings turns out vehicles like it's it becomes a really really specific subgenre that takes over the entire rest of strategy games in general and specifically uh strategy games that happen to also be real time but are not in this form so i think 
one of the things that would be useful for me here is uh talking about uh are we when we're saying rts are we meaning your warcraft likes or are we including real-time strategy classics like Sid Meier's Gettysburg and Dungeon Keeper? Both oh, of which came out this Sid Meier's Gettysburg is a real-time war game. They've been real-time war games since the beginning of computing. It's not anything especially new. Okay. It doesn't build off the RTS formula. It builds off You could argue game. Dungeon Keeper does, though. But Dungeon Keeper Dun- is not what most people would consider an RTS. And I don't want to get too yeah. bogged down in this. I just want to say this is kind Dungeon of Keeper why is a, I started is a, is disliking a, is, 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 is a, a city builder RPG. That is also a game okay. where you build buildings and churn out units and try to swarm your enemies By the with way, those units. This is where I'm so. just going to point out that yesterday when you're prepping for the show, uh, Rowan had one very clear request. He said something we we're absolutely not going to do on the show was engaged in definitional arguments. Rowan was emphatic about we can't do definitional arguments on the air. This is a slight exaggeration, but this is this is somewhat what I wanted to avoid by, you know, getting into what is the best real time strategy game of the year. Because the best real time strategy game of the year is clearly Sid Meier's Gettysburg by any definition. Hold on. Except for the extraordinarily boring definition of is this game like Warcraft? (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I am glad you opened the Pandora's box of your hypocrisy. Uh, because here's the thing. I'm actually with Troy on Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Like, it's a war game. It's it's very war gamey. Like, I think it's kind of forcing it into the RTS uh, field, uh, pushing it there. However, my game, uh, Myth the Fallen Lords, is definitely not a real time strategy game. But I'm also not sure it fits into any of these other genres uh, effectively. Um, and so, like, Myth is in this year as well, and it is a historical oddity. Myth is a game without genre, basically. It's real-time tactics, but I don't know. That is, that's not quite a war game. It's it's its own thing. Is it a, is it a, a fantasy war game? It, I don't know. I, it never has felt crunchy enough to be... Look, war games need stats. They need... They, they need his, historical. They need accessible stats historically. You just kind of a war game with a physics model. Good lord! Not unless you're talking <laughs> about like armor penetration, uh, in which case the physics model is totally great. But I'm just saying, like, there's this weird game there, uh, myth, which is sort of a singularity in in games history that I'm not sure what what we do with here. But it would feel ye- weird uh, to have year like this is the year of the classic RTS. Uh, this yeah. is well, and as you say, Troy, it's it's also a really dynamic year for that. Um, I will say that I was a huge devotee of Total Annihilation uh, at the time because I was a kid, and I was like, hell yes, like big, bigger maps, giant armies of robots. Uh, this is amazing. Like it, like I had never played a game before, and I still play damn few, by the way, uh, that have it be a mechanic that like the shattered husks of destroyed units become a physical obstacle on the map. Um, like this is a weird thing that can happen in total annihilation. And to some extent in the spring Banner series, but like your battlefields will be so filled with like the charred ruins of robots that sections become basically impassable, uh, until like cleaner units go in and start like hoovering up, uh, all the all the detritus of the last battle, uh, which is yeah, 
Was, was, and when, when you start running out of resources, that's the only way to keep going. So you, you're actually competing. The, those, those battlefield things become the resource that you now need. You need that metal. Well, and I think it's it's one of the only... I don't even think that Supreme Commander had anything like this, but the, the fact that in Total Annihilation, where if if you went and, you know, raided an opponent's base, but they blew up, like, one of your really big ships or something, you could actually come out strategically behind yes. in that engagement, because after you retreated, they could mine, you know, your big, you know, robot that they killed. I don't... Sorry, I had to step away for a sec. I don't know. Did you talk about the music at all? Oh, the Total Annihilation soundtrack? Yeah, so this is one of the examples of game companies starting to realize they can take advantage of infinite storage, because Total Annihilation has this huge, bombastic, super clear CD quality soundtrack. It's on the CD. You can just put it in a, a CD player and play it, and it's like trying to channel Star Wars as badly as it possibly can, and it's <laughs> just like adds so much personality to a game that otherwise doesn't have a ton of personality. And I think that's maybe it's it's fatal flaw. It's what prevents it from really having any staying power. Like I loved uh playing Total Annihilation, but even when I was most into it, I couldn't pick most of those units out out of a lineup. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> like there it were wasn't a handful focused I at all. Yeah, like especially with the expansions and stuff, there were just so many that I did, like I didn't even remember what half my own units were most of the time. Well, and also the the entire like uh, hordes of tiny mecha aesthetic is just always going to be really tough for like you know Ashes of the Singularity still struggles with this too. Like what what do any of these units really like look like or communicate? Uh, it's it's a difficult thing when you're when you know you're making these little tiny robot armies, um, and you compare that with like what Age of Empires is doing, which I think it, it's maybe the most base buildery of the base builder RTSs, uh, if that makes sense. Like, Age of Empires is an RTS that wants to strike the same chord that a city builder uh, wants to strike with you. At least aesthetically, I think I can agree with that. Yeah, I could. I can see that. Uh, I think Age of Empires one of the the main problems throughout the series has been too many resources um that's that's honestly something where i feel like a game like warcraft did do uh, a better job of of keeping it to you know two to three whereas it seemed like the resources in age of empires were there because historically it made sense that you would use those specific resources at, as time went on and it was never really well integrated into the balance well, like, of the game. There's only four. I mean, it's not like it's asking you to do heavy math in your head. I mean, yeah, when you're eight years old, counting to four is a bit of a challenge. But us grownups, we're I can't no believe trouble. that TJ is getting grognarded on so Age good. of Fucking Empires. Like this is this is a TJ this is amazing. I'm so glad we kid. did this show. Like, well, there's population the... too. You know, there's a lot well, of numbers no. going around. So I think <laughs> no. I, I kind of feel like, um, especially with the direction the RTS genre went later, there was kind of this assumption that like having fewer design elements automatically like means there's a certain elegance to what's happening there. So again, you get the the sort of StarCraft model, the two the two resource model uh, to an extent, but. And and I tended to agree with that. I tended to feel like Age of Empires was a bit busy and bloated. Uh, and I probably felt that way until 
like what really started bringing me around in that series uh, and the way it sort of built its factions and harnessed its economy was um, so over at Waypoint, uh, our friend our friend Bruno Diaz, who was on the uh, Tooth and Tail show, uh, wrote a really good retrospective piece on on Age of Empires two and its ongoing online community. Uh, but the thing that he sort of summed up that I never quite grokked with the series is that the reason it has all those different resources to an extent is because you can go off in really you like there are really there's really a broad uh, spectrum of like lines of play in that game. Like if you get chased off every gold patch in that game, but you still have access to like a lot of you still have a lot of food and wood for instance there are actually things you can still get done uh in that game and you can sort of spec your entire build around the fact that you basically got your ass kicked at all the like high value resources and create a pretty credible like peasant army uh to an extent that's something you can do with a lot of factions and i'm not sure that there are a lot of rts's that have it like have a resource system that's set up to allow as much diversity. Now, admittedly, I'm not sure Age of Empires is the best example of of the Age of Empires like approach to RTS design. Like, arguably, like you know, Age of Empires two is 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 the stronger example. But uh, I've I've definitely come around a little bit on the way Age of Empires creates its uh, economy. Interesting. Because I've I've noticed that in certain certain Civ games where you know if if you don't get access to iron early enough you have to go for a quantity versus quality approach, but I never really noticed that that was a thing in Age of Empires. So uh, to be a little more blunt about why these RTSs are ones that I don't like, um, they don't really have good campaigns. Total Annihilation has a pretty good like level design campaign, but there's like no story to it. Age of Empires fails pretty miserably. You don't love the saga of Arm and Core? (laughs) I mean, I I like the levels. I played through both sides of it, I think. Like, if gun to my head, you know, Total Annihilation is probably my favorite of these. But um, it's it's when Blizzard comes out out with StarCraft and says, no, we got a goddamn story here that is when I start to really like the genre. And I know I'm in a minority of not devoting 7,000 hours to rts online play but you know that's that's where i am i like single player games like that and uh, I, these are these are not a good crop for that i had to look up what the plot of total annihilation was like 15 minutes before this episode because i just remembered that there were the fast guys and the tough guys and they were shooting each other no. for some reason oh god so the thing is <laughs> even that like Yes, that's basically as far as I can remember. That's basically the difference between the factions is their yeah. their lowest level unit. Uh, the arm have the pee wee, which is the rapid fire guy, and then the core have this is some memory a here. not well, rapid fire guy, and that's the big <laughs> faction difference. Prior to the expansion, I think one faction had hover units, which were really good, and the other one had submarines, which really sucked, and it made one faction like clearly better on every water map and then i think they evened that out a little bit yeah hovering units were definitely yeah. on both sides by the time uh yeah yeah uh so uh, did, did any of you play dark rain we did a show on dark rain i loved dark okay. well i liked dark rain uh i think dark rain is a great example of 
kind of the experimentation you'd find in sort of your workaday RTS in this era before it kind of consolidated. I think Dark Rain had uh, some, I think Dark Rain was very good at making you fight over strategic points on a map. I'm not sure any RTS really forced you to do this as much as Dark Rain did until uh, Relic came along with Dawn of War. Um, I think that it did a lot of fun stuff with uh, Line of Sight, and it had some really nifty uh, special units that had special abilities, like the Phase Transport, which could just you know burrow underground, and it was like a little little subway line uh, for infantry. There was some cool stuff there. Uh, yeah, I, I mostly remember Dark Raid. I never actually got around to playing it because, like, when the previews were coming out, it was like, this is the one that's going to blow real-time strategy games open. And that one ended up being Total Annihilation, which was, you know, here's a re- RTS about robots. Okay, whatever. But uh, it, the popularity when they actually got released got totally flipped. But it seems like there's a little cult following for all the weird stuff that Dark Rain was trying to do. Troy? Yes? Do you stand for Age of Empires above all? In the RTS world, yeah, I kind of do. Um, I think that we talked about uh, Total Annihilation's music. I want to say where for, for Age of Empires art. Uh, it is probably the best-looking RTS, and, both, and it, will, it will be the best-looking, I think, real-time series for quite a while. Um, you look at, uh, you know, Dark Rain by comparison, and it looks, Hideous. you know, very... It looks it looks very DOS, where Age of Empires looks for his Windows ninety five, which <laughs> you know, I mean, Windows ninety five is really the the well, I was talking about the technological change to this era. Windows ninety five is a really big one for computers, moving out of DOS and into a proper GUI thing, which reinforces mouse usage, so we get the mouse uh, properly. And Dark Rain looks like it's a game from the past, as good as it is. Um, it doesn't have uh, the very modern cinematic look of something like uh, Age of Empires. I mean, Age of Empires had had the biggest lies on the box art. I mean, we'd have all of these grand battles with 60 units on each side fighting in a formation over a river when, you know, your population cap was 50, and that included your villagers. So the boxes were the biggest liars, and I was so, so upset. Um, but it, it did... It did it did look great. I never got the whole city builder feel to it because it didn't really matter where you put your buildings. Yeah. You just stuck them pretty much wherever. You'd build up a line of towers. You use towers as an offensive weapon. But I will stick for you. But I think it's I think it's a tactically interesting game. I think it's a strategically interesting game. The campaigns are terrible and the age of campaigns will all be terrible except for Age of Mythology. Um, it's not something that Ensemble ever got a firm grip on. Um, but I, I think it is really, it is a, it is a beautiful game that plays beautifully. And I think it is, I'm not going to say it's, it's a walk. I'm not going to say it's easily the best RTS of 1997, but I'm fairly convinced that it is. What if myth is in this conversation? If myth is in this conversation... And mind you, we're yeah. talking like the thing we'd the thing we'd still play today, right? Like historical importance is all importance is all well yeah. and good, and that, but that's why we're having this discussion is to sort of like appreciate historical context. But like the thing that you'd like 
actual that you'd say like yeah this holds up pretty well as as something i'd enjoy from this period that's a tougher call especially because it has a better sequel in i think two years i so troy brought up one of the reasons that i dislike the game is what's something that he kind of liked about it but i felt like there were a lot of promises that this was going to be like a historical civilization like game and what came out was very much a warcraft like game and i never got over that disappointment and i doubt i will i got over it when i played seven kingdoms and when i played rise of nations but those are those are in the future at this point yeah we should shout out the uh and we talked about this a little bit on the show, but this is the era of like ridiculous print ad, uh, like saturation. <laughs> and Age of Empires is one of the like prime examples of this, where like I know for a fact there were three page ads. There might have been four page or five pagers uh, that they did for this one, but like mm-hmm. the one I remember is like you know right hand side page. You have like. Uh, like heavy vignetting on the sides of the page. It's all blacked out. You can see a, a central circle in the middle showing a beautiful city. Uh, and it's like, ah, you've created a wonderful civilization. Uh, what more could your people possibly need? And then you opened to the following page and you get this two-page spread of like the most ridiculous, like heart-stoppingly amazing-looking ancient battle uh, that, you, that you could imagine uh, in that time. And... I think a lot of people really thought, like, from that ad campaign, they kind of came into the series with the expectation that it was going to be like, you know, civilization, but with dudes running around that you can control and fight over shit. The other thing I did want to say in in favor of Age of Empires, Troy mentioned it being tactically interesting, and I think that there's really something to be said for it being... The first RTS game where I really did think about kind of my formations and things like that. Warcraft 2, which was my, you know, tentpole before this, not so much. Like, it's the first game where I remember flanking with cavalry and, like, you know, executing ambushes and thinking about how my front line was set up and stuff like that, which would evolve quite a bit more when, you know, Shogun Total War came out. But up till then, I think Age of Empires was the game that scratched that particular well, itch for as me. As I recall, you really had to work to do that in Age of Empires because it didn't have formations. Right. Age of Empires 2 did, but for Age of Empires, if you wanted to do formations, which were reasonably effective, you had to really work at that. Wait, yeah. but, but didn't Age of Empires 1 have the auto sort at least, into, uh, like, melee guys would move to the front and archers would hang to the rear? I do not know. It might have, yeah, it might have, it it definitely didn't do things like putting cavalry on flanks. You all had to do that all manually, but. Yeah, I, like, I know, like, yeah, every, every art, every age of game, like, from two onwards had the auto formations. Uh, But Age of Empires 1, I need to look this up, see if there's a gameplay video. Because it was definitely one of those things. The screenshots certainly implied uh, a lot of things about that game and the oh, way yeah. it would look. Uh, but yeah, I'm not 100% sure that it had streamlined away that little bit of clunk. Yeah, no, I, I really, I definitely remember specifically having to like give a bunch of separate move orders of my units to get them in the optimal like engagement formation. I think there were very, very basic formations, but um, 
it wasn't at Age of Empires 2, which, yeah. to its credit, those are it was really beautiful to just watch your troops kind of move into formation in that one. And I don't remember getting that out of Age of Empires 1, but I think it did at least sort. Yeah, it, I don't. Th- yeah, I don't think it had the, the great formation controls. Well, it wasn't really controls. Like Age of Empires two took a lot of that out of your hands. But uh, yeah, I think that feature really came into its own with the fe- the the games further down the line, uh, which means like, uh, look, this may feel like I rigged this entire thing, <laughs> but I feel like Myth is probably the winner here. And I feel like that's what we're all agreeing on. I, I has TJ even played Myth? Yes, he loved it. <laughs> he told me before the show. <laughs> I mean, I I really like the idea of Myth. Um, when I first loaded it up, it was like, holy shit, it's a playable black company, which I had just read, and those are some great fantasy, I need to read those books, super man. dark stuff. It's uh, um, so I got really excited about it, but it was just so damn hard. I think it's a way more interesting game than any of the RTSs here that we're talking about i would say that i would put sid meyer's gettysburg dungeon keeper and myth above any of these but uh i didn't actually play it all that much i love the idea of it troy yeah i'll go along with you let's go with myth all right there we go myth goes in the capsule (laughs) yeah i think it's a lot of these directions don't really reach their pinnacle until a co- like a like a generation of RTSs later, and generations were super compressed back back then. Yeah, Myth like never six ha- months. Yeah, Myth though never really has another generation. It's these two games, uh, and then the entire design is like gone. Uh, so yeah, I feel like Myth. Um, well, you can listen to our show. Uh, why, why we think it's uh, it's it's an enduring classic. Um, Moving on from the RTS, and I think that's probably going to be most, our most hard-fought uh, category, with the possible exception of Wargame. Uh, Grand Strategy 4X. I have a feeling I know what Troy's going to pick out of the hat here. Uh, well, there aren't a lot of options, are there? There do not we've seem got, to be. We've got Imperialism, just on the list that I have. We've got Lords of Magic. We've got Warlords 3. Um, and I think that's that's all that I came up with. Yes, I mean, this is a slam dunk. I mean, it's going to be imperialism. Going to be uh, Warlords 3. <laughs> don't be silly. Just I mean, wait for our Warlords show. <laughs> yeah, I, imperialism uh, I, is, I think, one of the best designed uh, grand strategy games, 4X games. Imperialism was kind of grand strategy because the exploration was looking for minerals, uh, which I guess that counts. It's 4X Grand Strategy. It is one of the best, tightest designs, um, really, in Grand Strategy history. It is uh, it is a hard game. It is a worker placement game in many ways, where you're, you're, you're allocating workers, and you're doing sliders, and you're moving your uh, miners and harvesters around, um, where war is generally short, and until the very end, where it can get very destructive and brutal, it has uh, probably the best use of, 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 of dreadnoughts in any game that it realizes if you get to dreadnought first, you can pretty much take out any navy in the world. Um, so you've got to pick your enemies well. Um, let's sure talk about what it is a little bit, because sure. this isn't 
Actually, imperialism is. I mean, we, we, I think we did a show on it a long time ago. Imperialism yeah. is uh, from Frog City uh, and SSI. It is a game where you are an imperial power in the 19th century. This is a game about industrialization, where you build factories, improve factories, harvest resources, and importantly, buy them from minor powers. You are one of seven major powers. There are, I think, 12 minor powers, 12 or 16 minor powers. And you buy resources from them, suck up to them. Eventually, they will like you enough to agree to become your colony. Then you kind of own all of their things. Um, it is, and it climaxes in World War One. You're basically spending the entire ideally, game, yeah. ideally, yeah, building exponentially bigger economy until you just destroy everything at the end, which is a really interesting setup um, for a grand strategy game, which. Often they kind of peter out at the end. It's like you know who's going to win. But here it's like, oh, if you didn't build up like 600 light infantry units, you are screwed. This is a, this is a game that is all about the end game. Um, it, there, there is a, there's a bit of a snowball effect in that if you can you know, capture certain resources like uh, the big trees instead of the scrub. There are two types of trees, good trees and shit trees. Uh, the good trees will give you a lot more lumber, uh, but if you can if you can uh, corner certain markets, if you can get really good access to coal and iron, and have really good food resources, uh, then you can give the natural resources to move yourself forward even faster. Um, yeah, I would always try to pick a nation that bordered one other great power, and I would declare war in like turn five, and then take over all of its stuff. It's a bit of a cheese move, but it worked generally well. Um, and then you bought a lot, but you can't really take no one. Generally, no single power can take on uh, two enemies uh, very well. Unless it's got a huge technological advantage. Um, and it is really a game about balancing and food management. Some people like Imperialism Two better, which comes out a few years later. I think I kind I think I prefer the original. I think it is um a little bit less fussy. I think it has um It's a lot a, less genocidal, which is something. It has yeah, it's got well, you know, it's not a whole lot of genocide in Imperialism Two either, at least no more than other minor powers you take over. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's basically yeah. built around as soon as you meet a Native American faction you just invade with everything you have and if you don't do that then you're really wasting your time yeah um, it's it's pretty nasty does imperialism one kind of elide that entire part of the uh story? imperialism <laughs> one is entirely europe yeah, okay. well it's, it's entirely yeah well this is not, well this is an interesting like, quality yeah. right yeah. It, and I'm, this is another thing i'm not sure you get away with today uh you could do kind of weird shit in the mid to late 90s uh and certainly in, in the early 90s by all means but like you could make a strategy game that wasn't like sci-fi fantasy or anything was like historical but was like a weird like historical null zone right like imperialism the the random games yeah it's all europe-ish uh but it's not like every strategy game since then is like uh, literally, oh, this is this period in history. Here are the major players. Germany, France, Britain, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if, okay, could you imagine if Paradox released a Victoria game, but it's all random nations? Hmm. I, I mean, you have that with EU4. You can do that. 
Oh, with with like the world building stuff. Yeah, you can have you can set up a random game yeah. on the U four. Um, <laughs> but like this is also the era of Panzer General too. With this, that's this year. Uh, Panzer General, the first one, you could only play as the Nazis. That's why it's Panzer General. Uh, Panzer General Two uh, had campaigns for the others, but there there is an ability to do um, specifically things that we might look a lot more askance at today than uh, uh, we would have. But in, in terms of imperialism, one, I think this is a good example of what Rob was talking about with print ads being really over the top in pretty stupid ways um imperialism had these ads that are like are you worried that strategy games are too civilized so it's like clearly setting itself up as an alternative to civilization and it sort of is in kind of the same way we see paradox games as an alternative to civilization but the thing with imperialism is this is a game about economy this, this is way more of an economic sim than civilization ever has been civilization is still primarily a military game it's about taking specific land and exploiting that imperialism is about the process of the exploitation you're doing a lot more with trying to build your factories trying to build your railroads trying to make sure that you are connected to all these things that civilization kind of basically automates for you um so it's it gave a bad impression but i like the game that it became it is not kind of the nasty game that it said seemed like it wanted to be while it was advertising to those teenage boy gamers that uh this is this is the violent version of civilization it's quite the opposite and and the victory condition was to win a vote you had to win you know the congress of europe vote who is the boss of the world and that meant you know using the power of the purse to get as many colonies as you could to vote for you in the World Congress and get some allies on your side. Um, generally, that would mean at least one big war to take down your nearest rival or to pry some allies uh, away from him or her. But generally, this is a game about diplomacy uh, with a huge military component, but you're, you're not constantly fighting. You're constantly right. preparing for the fight. Civilization, I'd say you spend like 50 to 70% of the time moving units and fighting with those units imperialism it's like 10 to 20 percent and i i i enjoyed that a lot in the time that said i do think imperialism 2 was a slightly better game and uh if we want to talk about warlords this is i think the pinnacle of that series so that's why i prefer it but i have no problem with imperialism whatsoever so what is the case for warlords 3 so um warlords is a sort of long-running quietly long-running series from the late 80s into i think warlords 4 came out in the 2000s but it was trash but uh warlords 3 there are two incarnations this is the first one reign of heroes there's a second one called i think darkness rising that's kind of like an expand alone but it's focused on the bad guys and i think much less interesting um warlords 3 is a very simple kind of fantasy war game uh you basically you take a, over a castle, the castle is your economy, you build units, you take over the next castle. Uh, fighting is super simple. It's uh, Your troops are in lines across from one another. The weakest troops attack first until one army is gone. Um, and it's just kind of a fast-paced, fun war game that is very much centered around like really getting to know and love a map. Um, Warlords 3 has a really good campaign that you can do where you're taking like a knight who's been uh uh lost everything to the bad guys and like slowly reconquering the world from the evil Sauron like figure 
Um, if you've played Puzzle Quest, uh, it's actually literally that campaign, which is a really interesting little bit of game history. Wait, I love Puzzle Quest. Literal same like characters and um, it's exactly the same map. Puzzle Quest has way more characters. Oh wow! But uh, you're basically starting from the very south region as a Syrian knight. I think it's like, uh, I think that it's technically the uh, uh, like 500 years after yeah. Warlords Three campaign, but you're like almost literally following in the exact footsteps. Um, it so that that's a really neat bit of trivia because I like both of these games a lot. But uh, uh, this is just a fast fun strategy game that really connects you to the map and like i have no no issues with imperialism as i said but this is my favorite of one of my sneaky favorite series um it also does a really good job with music and terrible terrible full motion video that becomes <laughs> awesome because it's so bad uh the the bad guy is like just an actor dressed as a crappy lich in a darkly lit room uh, <laughs> yelling at you uh like if you get a whole bunch of money, he'll pop up and be like, you know, there are more important things than money. And God, I fade love away. This. It, it, it's, just, it's, it's just a really fun little game that is, you know, sometimes... I, I think that's the thing I argue for a lot here is, you know, a, a self-contained games that are not, you know, the only strategy game you want to play for years, but it's, it is also a pretty long game that you could play for years if you so desire, but it's... It's just a good time, and I like it a lot. But if if did, everyone else votes for imperialism, I have zero issue with that. Did anyone even play XCOM Apocalypse? Oh, XCOM Apocalypse is amazing to talk about. We should talk about it in like a tactical thing. But uh, did anyone play Lords of Magic? That's the only other four X thing we have here. No. Yeah, it doesn't. No, I never. T- I never touched that one. I really liked Lords of the Realm 1. I thought Lords of the Realm 2 was a disappointment and never got around to Lords of Magic. So, good try. Good try, Sierra. Um, you you made a pretty good game, apparently. But <laughs> We've actually never... already talked about both of the games on this list that I've played. I was, I was a poor Dickensian child who got, like, three video yeah. games a year, including Christmas and birthdays. So, yeah. Well... If you're learning something exciting, you can uh, you can jump I, in I and say, I'll, "Oh, that I'll sounds have, neat." I'll have more to say as we get more into the 2000s for sure. Real quick, you said you said XCOM two XCOM Apocalypse is amazing to talk about, but I feel like this is around the era that everyone stops caring about XCOM. It's partially because one of the reasons it's amazing to talk about is that it's not very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it. it. So, so XCOM Apocalypse. I remember how I was talking about there was this big like push towards real-time yeah. fast-paced violent games and there's also this backlash xcom apocalypse basically lives that it had a real-time mode that was basically just a real-time turn-based hybrid that was pretty much just about as tactical as xcom and could be played entirely in turn-based mode but xcom fans freak the fuck out because suddenly their beloved turn-based game has gone real-time just like all the other dumb games out in the universe so it had an immediate strike against it and it is probably weaker tactically than most of the others i don't think it's actually bad uh but it's it's it doesn't feel paced right um jagged alliance 2 which i think is the next year or maybe no that's 99 jagged alliance 2 is paced perfectly like when you click things they happen in the way you want them um, XCOM Apocalypse is sort of in this 
nether region of not quite getting how to really have a strong interface and that's a, a pretty serious issue with the tactics game um uh, the big thing that's really interesting about it is that it's set like 60 years after the first two XCOMs. Uh, it's in the far future. The um, alien technology and human technology have become like integrated. And humanity is like trapped in one giant super city with eight different corporations that are factions that are kind of trying to dominate it at the same time as there's another alien invasion and your XCOM trying to defend the alien invasion primarily but you're working with and against these corporations and these corporations are the things that are being taken over by the aliens so you can just lose an entire corporation as a potential ally if the aliens infiltrate it too much um, this city is a persistent destructible city you have cases where like an alien UFO will show up and start blowing up the only bridge that can take you to one corporation's headquarters. And if that bridge is gone, that bridge is gone. You'll never be able to get back to those headquarters by foot again. You will have to have your own flying ship, which comes later in the game. So there's a lot of really interesting ideas that I would love to see integrated into the current XCOM series here, particularly multiple different factions, particularly like a persistent world. Um, it just doesn't handle it incredibly well there's a lot of really good ideas that just aren't fully fleshed out um and uh, yeah I, I there are bits of that that are showing up especially in xcom 2 and in the xcom 1 expansion with exalt uh but uh, i i would love to see a game that actually did xcom apocalypse right because it should be done right it was a, it was a worthy attempt that never had a chance yeah, the XCOM series just like I was thinking XCOM Apocalypse might have been the one where like the series went off the rails, but it doesn't look like it. Uh but like that series never I like finds it better its than way Terror through. from the Deep. Uh yeah. I know that's that's somewhat her heretical, but uh I thought Terror from the Deep was just I think Bruce said it's basically it. a tile swap. It's basically a tile swap, but it's a tile swap that also adds these incredible arbitrary difficulty spikes. Um, so, like, I, yeah, and then after XCOM Apocalypse, you only have... You're getting like, to XCOM Enforcer. You have a first-person shooter and a Starfighter game, which that is not only terrible... Out, right? Interceptor? No, I think pretty sure it came out. I could be wrong, but it's just a monumentally bad idea. This is the win... Starfighter games are just totally collapsing on their own. Who wants to play an XCOM Starfighter game? But oh yeah, there you have it. It apparently did come out in '98. I thought for some reason that it uh, died a quiet death. Um, yeah. So in terms of grand strategy in this era, uh, like imperialism definitely sings seems like uh, you know the king to this day, uh, unless you got. Rowan, you already made your piece that Warlords 3 ain't getting this. Yeah, it's... I would prefer Warlords 3 get this and Imperialism get next year or whatever, but, you know. Yeah. Alright, so Imperialism uh, was for sure the best... Uh, definitely 100%, no argument, except for a, a quiet little little part of Rowan's soul, maybe. Uh, imperialism was the best grand strategy game of that year. Uh, this next one's gonna be tough. Um, going war game. We're, we're gonna talk about war games. All right, and this is gonna like they're all here. 
<laughs> yeah, this was a good year for war games. Uh, so we got Sid Meier's Gettysburg, uh, Close Combat A Bridge Too Far, Panzer General. Um, Panzer General 2. Yeah, Panzer General 2. Uh, which which is I the, think is the, the best far of the series. So. Yeah. Um, and then, Rowan, you've got like eight Battlegrounds here. Game, Battlegrounds <laughs> games here. <laughs> okay, just, just three Battlegrounds games, but I actually did have at least two, maybe three of them. But I, I added it because I figured we'd want to talk about them. I'll give them a minute or two if you don't. But. And, and, and the, the, the Great Battles series, Alexander and Hannibal, both come out this year. Oh, do they? Uh, when I'm making this list, war games are the easiest thing to fall through the cracks. So Yeah. Um, yeah, we should talk about those because those, those are kind of terrible and kind of awesome. There's also Pacific General in addition to Panzer General 2, and Pacific General is not very good. But I think it's interesting that SSI was so convinced that their Panzer General model was mainstream, that they were releasing one or two general games. God, it was like People's General, uh, Fantasy uh, General? Fantasy General, I will, I will, you know, ride or die with for. That game was awesome. Star General, Total Disaster. Um, Allied General, I think, was the first one after Panzer General. And Pacific General was kind of continuing that. So those are on the original Panzer General uh, model. Panzer General 2 leads to People's General. Those are, and then there are like two or three different Panzer General 3s. I wonder if part of the reason war games start to fall in hard times here, just again, thinking about how many general games came out, and then you've got John Tiller just cranking out the Battleground series uh, like, like they're going on a style, which they were. Uh, but uh, is that like in this era, these publishers and developers are starting to really like spin these things out. Like they're they're starting to come out at a pretty good clip. And I do wonder I think, if it started to feel like a bit of a like depreciated resource. I think it's somewhat the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. This is how most games were being released in the early 90s and in the late 80s. Like SSI would put out two or three gold box D&D games a year. And then when um, Interplay gets that license, they're coming out one one per year. You get, you know, Planescape Torment one year, Baldur's Gate the next year, Icewind Dale the next year, whatever. Um, And so these are kind of the last gasp of the era where once you get a good idea, you just kind of reskin it and put it out over and over and over. And that's definitely what the Battleground series is. Like that's they all look and play almost exactly the same. They're just different battles. All right, Uh, Rowan, let's let's start with the Battleground series real quick. Let's let's give a respectful nod to the games that do not have a snowball's chance in hell of winning (laughs) this category. Uh, So Battlegrounds. These are turn-based, regimental level, I believe, um, war games that I think their their main claim to fame is that they have like pretty detailed, hex-based, um, heavy terrain-centered maps. So it really looks like these are like very cool model systems wandering around a map. Um, they're very densely researched. Uh, it's very clear you are playing a war game, ass war game when you're doing them, but they're pretty good looking. Um, they go in a lot of different directions. Like I said, we have Battlegrounds 6 through 8, which are Napoleon and Russia, Bull Run, and Prelude to Waterloo, which are uh, uh, Borodino. And then Bull Run includes both Bull Runs, and Prelude to Waterloo includes um, Ligny and Cotterbra. Mm-hmm. Um And Prelude to Waterloo also, like, 
hooks into Battleground Waterloo, which was number two or number three. Uh, so you you have like a rudimentary, you know, oh, Mass you Effect style type thing. Yeah. Oh, that's really. So uh, I mean, that's really so cool. I, I can't love, imagine doing it. Uh, but I, I don't actually. I never actually truly loved these games. Um, I think they were way too susceptible to my usual war game issue, where I just kind of grind it out, and I don't think terribly tactically. Uh, but I always really liked that idea, and even though I'm not a Napoleonics guy, the the, the promise of that got me to get Prelude to Waterloo. So um, wait, I think Bull Run. Uh, go it, ahead. No, I'm sorry. Did they in this era were the Battlegrounds games also shipping with reenactment footage? Oh yeah. Oh god, yes. Yeah. Been... <laughs> love fucking love the CD ROM era. So <laughs> listeners, I'd like I'd like reenacted uh, CD quality uh, John Brown's body songs playing oh, constantly. God, it was endlessly. it was really intense. Yeah. Uh, so listener, uh, you got to imagine. There's all these goddamn units in the in these games. There are so many units you got to move around uh, this map, and there's a lot of like detailed like facing commands and for like there's a lot happening in a battlegrounds game. But every time they engage in combat, uh, you'll get a little clip of like modern reenactors uh, engaging in combat as well. And so like for the battlegrounds, like the civil war games, you'll see like civil war reenactors, like exchanging fire uh, in, you know, in these little, like, you know, hundred pixel windows uh, basically. And it is so cheesy and so grating, <laughs> uh, but no, nevertheless, it was like the battlegrounds concession to like CD ROM era modernity. Um, it, they, they were easily able to turn off um they were they were like contact sensitive, so if you were firing in a forest, you would see your <laughs> reenactors right. like coming out from behind trees. If you were at Gettysburg and they were firing over a stone wall, you know you'd have the Gettysburg reenactors. It was it was something. Uh, anyway, Bull Run, first Bull Run specifically was probably my favorite of the four or five of these that I played. Um, I don't remember exactly why. I think the relatively small scale combined with the you know crappy troops really made the system actually feel right in a way that uh the others felt a lot more grindy to me about but you know yeah i i think where this series begins to break down a little bit because i've also played the bull run one and like particularly a lot of those like smaller scenarios right where it's like early in the engagement and you're forcing a river crossing and most of the armies haven't made it to the field yet uh it's kind of cool it's a really neat like 19th century small unit command system it's not bad uh, when you start getting into like, you know, second, third day at Gettysburg level stuff, um, all that flexibility and finickiness in the design starts to feel like it's unnecessary because ultimately a lot of it comes down to like, look, you got your army, you got your army information, you got your position, you're really kind of just going along and making little adjustments, and then things are just taking a long time to sort of attrition you know, attrition their way to a conclusion. Yeah. Troy, did you play these? I've played some of them. They were the kind of games that, you know, you'd see them, I'd see them on the shelf like, wow, this looks great. And then I would play it and i think, huh, this really isn't that great, is it? Um, <laughs> well, but I kept getting sucked in. Um, every they're now fine. And then, they're, they're fine. I mean, they're very much, um, I think that they. I probably liked them better at the time, and I wonder if my memory is being clouded by the fact that 
the system hasn't moved on that much over the last few years, that it is these types of games are still being made uh, the, from the old the, the house that John Tiller built. Um, it is tough to assess Tiller's work in its original context from 2017. Yeah. Which is, especially when you at the time you do have things like uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg coming out, uh, where you see people taking the war game in interesting and challenging and new directions. Um, where this is, yeah, this is what three battleground games in a year. Of course, of course, you can do that because everyone said people just could easily just churn out the templates at this time. It wasn't unusual. Except he's but still doing it, that. <laughs> but it's you can still do it, and he's still. Um, on, but it's the same battles over and over. Um, it's they're fine for war games. They were they're fine. They were fine at the time. I can see why you know the the heavy grown yards would get into them because they are so because they are regimental level, which means you can do this the fine tuning of your march through the marshes or through the forest, and I, the terrain effects are really really outstanding. But you know, it's they, the maps can still feel crowded, even when they're so big, because the the, the ground because the, the terrain is always there. It is it's hard to get a sense of it because it's always around you. Um, just, I've I always had a difficult I always found it difficult to really get a sense of the ground because the map is so detailed from space to space, and how many hexes will it? How many turns will it take? This you this these three regiments to march in that direction, and then if I want to do a flanking maneuver or if I want to do a fast march, how many turns is that going to take? Um, how many buttons do I have to press to get them to turn around and do that in the first place, which is always a pain in the ass. Um, so there was, I always had a diff, a hard time, even for war games of the era. I've always had a hard time with the battleground games getting a sense of. What I should be doing. Yeah. What, so I have. What is my task as a general right now? If I have a plan, because God knows every now and then lightning strikes and I have a plan, how do I execute it? And I, I've never found the Battleground games conducive to the execution of a plan. So I have a story that I think serves as a pretty good capstone for this. Um, so like I said, the Battle of First Bull Run was the time I liked this series the most. I actually started a multiplayer game once with somebody, um, and I was the Union, and we were doing like the full game starting at like 4 a.m. of the day of the battle. So I'm starting with my troops kind of all in camp way far away, and I get to decide which way they're going. I decide instead of marching around the Confederate left, as happened historically, I'm going to march around the Confederate right, which is possible because the maps are so big. But getting my troops to slowly march to the battlefield along this long ass path in like 15 minute intervals and then playing by email sending this thing i never actually oh like got to the point where the battle even started before one of the people <laughs> playing ran out of patience for it so yeah the the, the ideas are kind of there that the is the most rowan kaiser but... victory i can possibly imagine <laughs> is, i'm not mad this poor this poor bastard on the other end of these emails like waiting for this like for this goddamn civil war battle to start and like nothing I mean, I ever happened. i want to give up too it's the, this is play by email you know yeah uh but yeah 
it was a great idea and like that's that's the sort of thing that i want to see more in war games like something like uh, ultimate general doesn't really have that option you start like with your troops facing one another in every scenario and even sid Meier's gettysburg gets at it in a totally different way and we should probably transition talking about that yeah yeah especially as, as troy brought up like he never gets a feel for the ground in uh in battleground in the battleground series but if we're talking about damn good ground <laughs> I think you gotta talk about St. Mars Gettysburg. We gotta go get those shoes. Such a good game. So good. Right. So, let me I have a I have a question for you guys as yeah. we get to talking about this, since this is kind of held up as one of the great strategy games of the nineties that I missed. Can I go back or anyone else that's oh, listening boy. who didn't play it, go back and play this now and have Maybe not an amazing experience, but still a fun experience. I'm not sure you can get it to run, uh, to be quite honest. Like yeah. I that, tried to play this a few years back, and like my my CD ROMs had finally hit the point where like there's there was no compatibility magic I could perform to make them run. <laughs> so this is this is the era, as Troy mentioned, of Windows 95, also Windows 98 momentarily, um, and for whatever reason. Uh, Modern software emulation is really bad at getting like these particular three years around like 96 to 98. Um, Total Annihilation can be extremely difficult to play. I think Total Total Annihilation Kingdoms is impossible to play. I tried to go back and play that a while back. I'm not even sure Sid Meier's Gettysburg is legally available anywhere. No. Um, Uh, A listener sent me... uh, his versions of it. He said he could get it to run, but I could never get either Gettysburg or Antietam to run. Um, so I can't confirm whether it would... St- I, I believe it would hold up very well. I think that uh, until Ultimate General Gettysburg came along, this was the best Gettysburg game bar none. And I would still say it I, is. Yeah, I'd still say yeah. it's better than Ultimate... Like, I, I like Ultimate General Gettysburg a lot. I like what it's doing. Um, I don't think it holds a candle. Uh, maybe the only competition I would say is out there is um, Battleground. No, <laughs> no. Um, the Tick Man series, yeah, Scourge of War. Yeah. Well, um, I, I got roasted when I when I did that that historical PC games article for calling out Ultimate General because everyone was saying how could you snub Sid Meier's Gettysburg like that, and I was like, sorry guys, I never played it. Yeah, but weren't you doing modern yeah. games specifically? Like it was, it, it was. It, the the original pitched angle on the article was most historical strategy games, and I I kind of twisted it a little bit because I didn't think that was necessarily a great idea. Because someone there's always going to be a more historical strategy game is kind of the the feeling I have. Like there's always going to be that one game you've never heard of that slightly better, you know, modeled the maneuvering of Astuka or something like that. Like there's always going to be a game that someone can say is more historical. I was going for games that were like uncommonly good at making accessible historical concepts that are usually ignored in other games. Well, boy, if that isn't if that isn't Sid Meier's Gettysburg uh, to yeah. a T, right? Like, so do, do you want to describe it for our <clears throat> listeners who might they they, they, they listen? Yeah, long time listeners don't know this. But well, yeah, we did a show on it a few years back. With to, with, to with answer TJ in terms of the game itself. I think that you could easily jump in and play it. It's yeah, only a little bit clunkier than Ultimate General Gettysburg. Um, I, I, I think very, if yeah. you could get a way to, if you could manage to get it to work, and I'm, okay. I'm 
checking torrent sites because sometimes pirates <laughs> actually do this work that I am sure uh, there's a way people that don't. like you probably can get it running but it's going to be way bit like getting myth to run right now required yep. like a pretty heavy fan project patch lift uh, and the code to be basically left open uh, and that's why you can play myth with project magma uh, right now uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg doesn't have anything equivalent to that as nearly as I can tell the last time I played it I think was when we were prepping that show we did with Brecken uh, years ago but uh, so Sid Meier's Gettysburg again in context a lot of war games around this era are really following that Battlegrounds mold hex based uh, very very clicky very clunky uh, Panzer General's, uh, you know, innovation is to really strip that down as much as possible and make that kind of war game accessible to all. Uh, Sid Meier comes in and kind of reimagines the entire thing. Uh, you know, it's, it, let's make a real-time war game. Uh, what if instead of, like, having this really Baroque interface, you can sort of just, like, kind of click and drag your units around, right? Or, or at least, like... This I is think, when Myth is also working on that, too, right? Yeah, uh, very much so. And so... Um, s- another thing that Sid Meier did is he read the American Heritage Civil War book, which is this big old coffee table book that has these huge painted like maps of each battle. And it shows these little tiny units who are like in... Or little tiny people in, in their units in each section of the map. And it's like labeled on the side. So it's like one, you know, the initial skirmishers fight each other at uh um along mcpherson's ridge and you see like the little casualties starting to pile up across the map as the battle shifts and sid meyer was like i love these pictures let's let's make this game and he did like it it looks exactly like that i i had that book i love those pictures too and like i see why he did that and he did a fantastic job with it or you know all for axis did but the other really important thing to uh get at here and it's a really important sort of insight he had is that a lot of war games following from the board game tradition uh in this era to the like still we're using like versions of uh combat resolution tables right so like terrain matters insofar as it's going to affect a die roll uh and that's going to change that's going to affect the outcome of the battle right so like your artillery might have like a slightly like wider range of like lethal outcomes if they're firing from an elevated position uh onto a unit in exposed terrain Meyer kind of comes in and almost kind of sweeps all that aside and is like, none of that is really what matters. Like, in Civil War combat, even though it's like an incredibly bloody war, uh, what really matters here is the, the, the sort of the willingness of units to stand in place and continue fighting. Like, the Civil War is not about destruction of units, it is about destruction of morale. Uh, and that is where terrain and leadership really come into play. What they modify isn't necessarily like there. There is an element of like combat effectiveness and lethality that terrain terrain is interacting with. But the most important thing that's going to happen here, in terms of like how formations work and how terrain interacts with them, is they all modify soldiers' ability ability to stand in line and take punishment. And so. Every unit has a base level, like they have like four morale pips, right? Is what a uh, regular unit of infantry would have, I think. Maybe it was three, maybe yeah. it was four. I think, I think four up. is regular, three is green, and like five is veteran, and six is elite. Yeah. And so it would all fill up includes as, training. as units took, uh, took punishment. But the thing is, you'd have those four bars to start with. But if that unit moves into a forest, they get an extra bar. If it's 
rocky forested terrain, they get another bar. If a general is nearby and he's really good, I think they can get like two. But like, and this is how you sort of build a position and you build your like you you sort of manage your army. You want to maximize the ability of your army to stand in place on advantageous terrain. Also, if they have units next to them or behind them, then they get another pip. Yep. For each of those. So you could have three more for having it in the center of a double line. And so without any like really fussy like psychological modeling, uh Sid Meier's Gettysburg becomes like the ultimate model of like the psychology of civil war, like leadership and uh, you know, infantry tactics, right? Like this is this is what combat in this era is, is all about. And damn if it doesn't feel like authentic to what you read about in Civil War histories. Like Sid Meier's Gettysburg feels like playing playing that coffee table book map. Uh, it feels like playing uh, the Killer Angels or or something like that. It is it's that evocative. Uh, and I'm not sure there'd been a game prior to it that uh, that, that came anywhere close to being something that accessible and that authentic feeling yeah the, the the idea is the the beer and pretzels war game the thing that anyone can just pick up and play like this is supposedly looked down on like the grognards are supposed to be playing you know john taylor's battlegrounds which are fine as we've said but this is they, the game really? that comes out of nowhere flips the idea and says by being simpler this game this actually feels way more accurate um go ahead troy yeah and it's it also breaks one of the cardinal rules of of war game design, and it's called Sid Meier's Gettysburg, but you never play all of Gettysburg. Mm. Yes, this is, this unlike, is what I, where unlike, I was going. Yeah, look, and, and, and Antietam, Sid Meier's Antietam gives you the whole battle, that's great, but Sid Meier's Gettysburg is about episodes in the battle. Uh, even if it, it'll sometimes show you this whole great big front line of troops, but you're just controlling, you know, a dozen units, maybe. Um, and the other ones are just there for show, uh, to remind you that there are other units there. It is about uh, small groups of troops. It's not about the entire battle, but it is about being a part of that battle. And you do get to focus on why it's you know better than uh, Battleground with terrain, is that you get to, because it's so small, you get to know all of that terrain very well as you move through from battle to battle, dynamic scenario to dynamic scenario. Um, you it teaches you so much about uh use of 19th century battlefield tactics much of which is probably still applicable uh today for your standard musket bearing army like the canadians uh but <laughs> but it is it is i probably have you know some of my favorite all-time favorite multi i'm not a huge multiplayer game person because of my schedule and my impatience I've had so many amazing battles and just experiences and great memories of pulling off an amazing tactical victory or but through use of the terrain, through a proper forced march at the right time, through putting the Iron Brigade in the right spot at the right time because I needed that little extra pip of strength on the green troops over on the left flank. It, the system is so intuitive, um, and it is so clear uh, what you are doing and what you should be doing. And just because you know what you should be doing doesn't mean you can actually do it. Uh, but it is 
it is a beautiful, elegant, brilliant game that uh, I think has... I think you can see touches of it in games that are very, very different. Like Unity of Command, for example, has very little in common with the design of Sid Meier's Gettysburg, but I think its ethos of design is very similar to Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Take one big idea. Sid Meier's Gettysburg, it's, it's unit cohesion and morale. In Unity of Command, it is supply. And build your entire design around that one conceit, and you can have a brilliant, simple easy to pick up, and educational and intuitive war game. Uh, so to talk about the, the scenario-based design of this a bit, this, we've talked about this on other shows, but it's, it is the thing that sticks with me the most about this game, particularly when I play other war games that have never actually come close to having a campaign system as good as this. Um, it's basically like a choose-your-own-adventure thing, uh, Wing Commander style uh where you start with every every game starts with the same scenario scenario of trying to take mcpherson's hill from the iron brigade if you're the confederates or trying to defend with the iron brigade if you're the the union and then depending on um how well you do what supplemental objectives you might have got whether you got the main objective that makes the next scenario happen if you lose as the confederates then you have to attack with uh Rhodes brigade or division at uh the next hill that i'm blanking on if you win then you're attacking seminary ridge directly uh and this kind of escalates more and more over time to the point where you can be doing like what seems like a totally different Gettysburg. It sort of bends back, but it also gives option. At the end of the first day, as the Confederates, if you're feeling strong but you didn't take uh, Cemetery Hill, you can attack with Yule. Uh, on, at the end of the second day, you get the choice, do you want to continue Long, Longstreet's attack on the Round Tops, or do you want to try to do Pickett's Charge? So you, you get occasional options like those, but um, it does a really good job in at randomly taking exactly where these things happen like there are a few different roads that Pettigrew's brigade can come down on that first engagement and sometimes it will randomly put Pettigrew attacking from the north sometimes it'll have him coming down from the south sometimes you're supposed to take another hill and if you t manage to take that hill even if you don't take it uh even if you don't take McPherson's Hill on the first ridge, you'll have a more advantageous second scenario. It'll be a lot easier for you to deal with. There's just a whole bunch of really neat little design things like that in that game that I wish every other game would do. I really want Ultimate General Civil War to do things like that. Yeah, I'd be so happy. Nobody's come like I, I don't think anybody's really even tried to do that kind of like plausible variability, uh, plausible yeah. randomness uh, in a scenario. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, I want to touch on Panzer General 2 just real quick because I don't think it has a hope in hell of taking this topic. Because I, like, I really like Panzer General 2. It's worth talking about. I do too. And I mean, I think I'm with you. It's the best of that series. Uh, I think it has, I think it still has gorgeous pixel art. Uh, a lot of games from this era do. Uh, but Panzer General 2, I think, stands out as having some just lovely battlefield maps. Uh, yeah, they, they, it has like these hand painted battle maps that they impose hexes over. It's really amazing. Yeah, it's 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 a tremendous effect. Uh it's got a really like it's got a really satisfying like campaign. Uh it also yeah, I campaigns. think Yeah, and I, and I think it critically 
feels less we 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 bash this game this series and its successors for the puzzle like design and sort of the cheapness of like oh well basically the solution to this scenario was memorizing the position of every single unit that's out there <laughs> i think panzer general 2 still suffers from this a little bit but it doesn't feel quite as like punishing or cheap the way like Panzer Corps certainly does, where Panzer Corps literally has, like, oh, well, surprise, it's another anti-tank unit that was just, like, sitting out in the middle of nowhere uh, to, to kill the only units that could reach it first, uh, your 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 armor uh, or, or your recon unit. Um, Panzer General II doesn't seem to fall back on that uh, as much, and I think that's one of the reasons why, like, Panzer General is, dem- Panzer General II, like, felt demanding to me, but also still felt like a war game where you're expected to do things like reconnaissance and like sort of feel out enemy positions and figure way, figure your way through um, yeah. more so than a lot of the games that sort of have followed in, in its footsteps. Yeah. Um, it has four different campaigns. I think it has like a, an early German campaign and a late German campaign plus an American an American slash British, or maybe there's an American and a British, maybe there's five, and a Russian campaign, which was my favorite. Um, and that that's an improvement over the uh, over the initial Panzer General, which was just, just the Germans. It does a good job of uh, doing kind of plausible alternate history scenarios. Like uh, the first German mission or two is uh in the spanish civil war so you're kind of getting the hang of how these troops are supposed to work i feel like the upgrade system is fairly well balanced the first soviet mission i think is the finnish invasion uh so you you kind of can get your feet wet a little bit before just jumping into the hard stuff um it also a lot like total annihilation takes really good advantage of having cd storage in order to have fantastic music it's one of the best soundtracks of any game i've ever played uh, just filled with like cliche nationalist bombast of <laughs> exactly the right level. Um, you know the the little Russian dances mo- motifs through their thing. Uh, their bagpipes and the British one. Uh, it's pretty great. Um, and also yeah, it, doesn't get insanely bloated. Uh, yeah, which again, some of its successors. It's like man, it's not going to feel like Operation Sea Lion or Operation Barbarossa. Unless there's approximately 200 units under your command every turn, yeah, uh, the, it, it builds high and not wide. You're, yeah. you're building super duper elite units that you're trying to keep in as good a shape as you possibly can, as opposed to just getting a bigger and bigger army. And there's there's flexibility in it. I know a lot of people who say that uh, it, you can you can and maybe even should do it without um, without building an air force. You you can survive with anti-air uh, because planes are just so expensive. So there's there's some nice flexibility in it. It's a, it's a easily the best Panzer General. Well, maybe not easily. I do love Fantasy General, but it's uh, definitely the best of the historical ones and uh, um, would be a competitor for best war game in most other years that don't have probably my favorite war game. Uh, and this also has my favorite war game, I think. But it's not Sid Meier's Gettysburg. It's close combat. Yes, Troy. You know, you 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 guessed my heart. Uh, is that because? Do you know why it's my favorite? Can, do you know why Close Combat: A Bridge Too Far is so brilliant? I do not know why Close Combat: A Bridge Too Far is too brilliant. Uh, 
so I think close com like the close combat series. Uh, its great insight was that it had these like really detailed, like supposedly psychological models of troops, like all probably wildly overstated. Uh, but nevertheless, like close combat, which to give a little bit of background was originally going to be an adaptation of, of Avalon Hills squad leader series. Uh, things kind of went awry with that plan. Uh, I think in part because increasingly it was becoming clear that maybe squad leader didn't have the legs uh, that the sort of atomic games Microsoft wanted, or maybe the direction was just becoming uh, way too different from the classic, uh, you know, hex based model of squad leader, but it turns into close combat. The first game was set in Normandy and it was fine. It was good. Uh, but close combat at bridge too far is this really interesting combination of like, really demanding real-time war game with a lot of focus on like individual soldiers, but not in like a Jagged Alliance 2 sort of way where they're like all characters that build up and and sort of like level up with experience. It's more like every soldier had a capacity to surprise or disappoint you in equal measure. Uh and some would become like a t- would sort of trend toward becoming heroes and others would become you know, would eventually sort of prove they uh, would hit their moment of combat fatigue or or their moment of cowardice. Um, and so you have these really, like, evocative, uh, for the time, incredibly intense uh, real-time battles uh, that you're fighting. Soldiers screaming out for their sergeants, uh, really brilliant sound effects, um, you know, when when everything, when all hell broke loose and it's this cacophony of, like, multiple heavy machine guns just going off, uh, mortars dropping in, uh, 88 sort of pounding a position, tanks rolling up. It was tremendous. But in addition to that, Close Combat A Bridge Too Far also has a really good meta campaign that I think you can literally only use this campaign structure around this one historical campaign. Like, literally, I think it is, enti- it is entirely bespoke to its subject matter, which is Operation Market Garden, uh, which is where the Allies are trying to sprint through Holland into Germany in 1944 and sort of, you know, end the war by Christmas or whatever the objective was. Uh, but really, it was to sort of uh, sweep through Holland and uh, get into the uh, industrial Ruhr uh, region of Germany and, and sort of knock out Germany's industrial capacity uh, by, by the end of the year. And so the plan is this really ambitious. We will drop uh, airborne and gliderborne troops near all the major bridges along this uh, this this highway through the, through Holland, and we have to capture all of those bridges and hold them. And then we have to advance an entire army along this one road that is basically a glorified causeway uh, across all of those bridges. It all has to happen in about a week. And the Germans are going to be attacking from both sides. Good luck. And close combat bridge too far kind of gets at all of that. Uh, you know, the how quick, like, it's this brilliant structure of that allied advance along the ground is going to continue basically at a set pace uh, as long as all the bridges are kept standing. If you keep holding their line of advance open they will continue advancing on schedule. But every single bridge that gets destroyed, every single time the road gets cut, uh, units go out of supply, 
and that advance is halted. And so you're basically fighting on two fronts. On the one hand, you're, you're trying to keep those bridges open and keep your army advancing. Uh, but on the other hand, the Germans can be attacking along any of the maps along that route to try and cut the highway uh, at any point. And some of the tactical maps are sort of these uh, nested, it's like a best of three system almost, where you'll have like, you know, an east map, a central map, and a west map. And there'll be sort of a pitched b- battle uh, from 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 end to end of of this of this set of maps, um, and the close combat series tried models like this later. Uh, it tried different sort of campaign structures, but it was all really artificial because no campaign except for this one really works this way. Like using the system for all of the Eastern Front, which is what they tried to do, like a couple years later ended up really kind of doing an injustice both to the Eastern Front and to the close combat system. But here, they interacted just about perfectly. So I have, I have TJ's question here for you, Rob, which is, okay. uh, I, I tried to get in, I always kind of wanted it, but never actually got around to it, tried to get into it like 10 years later and bounced off it pretty hard. But it, is this a playable game today, both like legally and interface wise. i do not believe it is um so i look, what I a lost... great show we have here <laughs> yeah, yeah there, uh, there, look. There, are, there are other there are other close combat games on steam but not this one and unfortunately none of them quite like there's even i think a close combat arnhem uh one on steam um that is this campaign uh, that was made much more recently and will still run, and it's 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 good. It's a it's a fun example of uh, of the close combat system, but it is not this exact game. And the problem is this game. This exact game is brilliant because it has this campaign because it's at a very manageable scale. Um, the later ones, I think, really sort of expanded the number of troops under your command. It's always felt like there's way more squads on the map in the more recent ones from Matrix. Yeah. Um, and that kind of ends up breaking the intimate connection you have in those early games where like, you will literally like know the names of the three guys on your Browning 30 Cal. You know what I mean? And like, you'll know their names because they've distinguished themselves in the past. And like, that is your good, that is your good 30 Cal, right? Like that's the one you set up with the most important field of fire that like, if anyone gets past this point, uh, we're going to be in deep shit. So I need to make sure like, you know, you know, the, the Jones crew is basically on this gun. Um, and well, it's, what's interesting is, is the, you, when you describe that specific, uh, you know, facet that you enjoyed about it. What came to mind immediately for me in terms of newer stuff is to a lesser extent, XCOM to a greater extent, maybe darkest dungeon. And I'm curious if you think those are comparable in that particular area. So XCOM, um, uh, you know, I was going to say XCOM would not be a good, but XCOM might be a better one. Darkest dungeon. I think you get a sense of your of your troops' vulnerabilities in Darkest Dungeon and start allowing for them, which you kind of have to start doing in, in close combat as well, particularly as like squads start getting beat up and some troops become walking wounded. Um, and so a lot of it becomes like about respecting the frailty of, of your troops and sort of protecting them in their sort of slightly uh, declined state. 
uh, as mm-hmm. as attrition takes its toll. Uh, but XCOM at the same time, like veteran troops, troops that are like known quantities and tested quantities in uh, Bridge Too Far, have a value that is similar to like a good trooper in in XCOM. Like if you lose your good sniper in close combat. That is a major loss because, like, a really effective sniper is actually really hard to come by in that game. Like, someone mm-hmm. who will make a meaningful, like, tactical outcome happen uh, with a sniper rifle is very rare. Um, and if you lose your sort of ace sniper in that game, very quickly you, like, start to feel like, okay, well, now, even if I replace that uh, character, even if I replace that unit, um, I'm behind the curve here. And I basically should just give up on snipers entirely. I'd be better off with a, like a squad of green infantry. So there is a bit of that element. So okay. to go into uh, this piece you wrote le- last week, Rob, um, which if anyone hasn't read, Rob wrote about the new Call of Duty World War II and the mythology of World War II. Um, I was kind of with TJ on what you were talking about sounding a lot like Darkest Dungeon. And I know that one of the impulses to create Darkest Dungeon was a scene in Band of Brothers where a dude watches people next to him get taken out by artillery and just like stands up with a thousand yard stare, drops his gun and walks off. Yeah. Um, which is like what is more mythologizing of World War II than Band of Brothers, right? Do you think the close combat kind of fits in this 90s era of greatest generation that stuff that you were writing about? Yes and no. Uh, the thing I'll say is that I think close combat is unsentimental in a way that a lot of its contemporaries and particularly a lot of like late nineties, early two thousands games about world war two started to become sentimental in the way that like band of brothers was, but I think close combat started from the position of just try again, really just trying to mechanically model um, how units and soldiers behaved uh, in this era. And I think maybe the, the thing that it does is, heroism is a rare commodity on these battlefields. Most soldiers are just average. Most soldiers just like they come under fire. They're done. They're not going to do anything miraculous or amazing. And I think a lot of the historiography in this era and then the shows and games that inspires is about like, Oh, under these difficulty circumstances, uh, these, these heroic men rose to the occasion. In call of in in no, sorry in um in close combat, uh, rising the occasion is maybe not the play uh, for a lot of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and I like that. I, I like that it's um, you know, for like for for every time you do have an amazing story of like a guy like going berserk after watching his buddies get killed and like bum rush a machine gun nest and like kill them with his bare hands, which I have seen happen. For every time that happens. Uh, it's way more likely that that guy curls into a ball uh, and starts hiding behind his buddy's corpses. Uh, or he, like, you know, flips out and starts to charge that machine gun and just gets cut down. Like, for the most part, like, heroism is a rare commodity. It's effective heroism, even rarer. Uh, and I think close combat distinguishes itself by by being kind of that unsentimental, uh, unsparing view of, like, what the infantry experience of World War II was. 
quick thing had a great mod it had a great manual uh had a great potted history of this campaign tons of personal veterans anecdotes i think something that helped is that close combat a bridge too far starts from the position of this campaign went badly like a lot of mistakes were made there were a lot of screw-ups a lot of people paid the price and i think that also helps sort of puncture that idea of like uh that that nostalgia right that sort of that sort of gauzy reminiscence of like you know this was this was a better time a simpler time because this game starting the position of arguably this didn't need to happen and shouldn't have yeah um this is also an interesting game in the business aspect because you talked about how Microsoft published this. This is Microsoft publishing a hardcore squad-based war game. It is real-time, but like this is an era where people still thought that maybe you could have a giant publisher putting out war games like this and it would work. And I mean, it was successful enough to have a continued series, but I don't think it was ever like a major real-time strategy hit in the way that Microsoft might have wanted, but just an interesting little note. But we're still going with Gettysburg here, right? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> I mean, no, I, mean I, I, I love the close combats here. I haven't played uh, this one. Uh, those, I now want to try to find it just for the meta campaign. I'm a huge fan of close combat, um, but Sid Meier's Gettysburg is just so damn good. I mean, if Rob is the only one who has played both of these particular games oh and God. says that, that's oh hard to God. beat. Yeah. But uh, so we can, what I think we should do here is we should give best war game to close combat, but best overall is still Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Um, I can live with that. If we're willing to say, like, <laughs> Sid Meier's Gettysburg is the best overall game. And close combat is best war game. I can live with that because I think the only I think the only real competition that that Gettysburg has is in terms of stuff I want to play today is myth. Imperialism, kinda. Yeah, but even then, I mean, I I can get imperialism to work. I really wish I could get Gettysburg to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. that's that's okay. that that rationale is why I'm not too. I'm not going to like really go fight for Age of Empires because you're right. AOE 2 was better and Rise of Nations was better than both of them. So if we're talking <laughs> about saving something in a time capsule, yeah. I would rather look further down the line to when they had perfected that particular type of strategy game. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's one other major game we should mention uh-huh. for strategy games. Don't... Dungeon Keeper. Okay. Why? It's, it's not very good. It's well, but, okay. no, it's, but if it's not very good, then why does everyone keep remaking it? <laughs> because people <laughs> think it's good. Okay, why do people think it's good? That's a good question. It, this is this is a this is a dominant strategy game from this era. It was quite popular. Yeah. It's still thought of very fondly. I think of it fairly fondly. I don't think it's a great strategy game, but I liked my time with it. I don't think it's a genre that is terribly fruitful to keep mining, but. People are doing that. It has this curious hold on people of, well, our generation, I guess. And I I wish I understood why. I mean, Dungeon Keeper was an attractive game for a lot of reasons. I understand why it was a success. First, the art direction was outstanding. The narration, the narrator. Let's start with what it is. Dungeon Keeper, you play uh, the master of a dungeon. You try to, you you have, have, you build. It's like a. You keep a a dungeon. What do you want from me? It's a, you it's, it's, it's you a are the bad. Traps. You are, are you are the bad guy of an RPG. 
This is this is the fantasy it's selling is specifically Ultima because EA published it and like the big boss is the avatar from Ultima Eight. Ironically, that I did not know. Yeah, uh, but but it's it's taking that idea and saying build traps. You try to kill heroes, try to conquer your dungeon, and you build traps and attract monsters to stop them uh, from defeating your dungeon. Um, And and how does one attract a monster? Do you just build you a monster, build or do you have to like convince one to move in? You build a room that has things that, like. that monsters like. It yeah. basically each different monster type has a room, and the larger the room, the more monsters you can fit in there. So you know, and uh, then here whatever walk into them and get their ass kicked. You you like set up flags that the monsters will run off to. Um, so if the heroes are coming in from like the north side of the dungeon, you put up a flag, and the monsters slowly work their way there. It's very indirect in that respect. You have to have played a, a Dungeon Keeper like, right? Look, I'm the only person who was apparently crazy enough to think that was it Empire? I don't remember. Look, <laughs> I definitely overrated one of these games uh, a while back. Like we we all I, liked Empire when we only played it for a couple hours. Remember? <laughs> Look, Eve... it's definitely the only Total War game <laughs> worth remembering in any way. Um, <laughs> Uh, look, Sorry. but I'm not even sure it was Empire. Uh, there, there was another game that was in this vein that I that I did like, and I, I enjoyed sort of the level design, cuteness, the meta-ness of it. Probably a little too much. Um, uh, Dungeons, I think, is, yeah, is one of the series. Might have been it. It's pretty good. It's uh, they yelled at me for not liking their game enough. Uh, okay, I, so there there is there is I'm gonna I'm gonna blow the the lid off this thing. There is a good modern dungeon keeper like game. It is not a video game, though. It's it's a board game called Dungeon Lords. It's basically oh. Dungeon Keeper board game, but it has this really interesting mechanic where if you get too far ahead in the early game, the stronger heroes will hear about you first, and they'll come to your dungeon. So it's this weird kind of like competing to be the most evil overlord while also trying oh, to kind of like, stay under the radar. Make sure you're type in second thing. place, like be the most second right. evil overlord exactly, until the end. The so, Uber Paladin will go to whoever has the highest level dungeon and, you know, wreck their shit. Whereas, you know, if, if you're in the, you know, behind, you might get like Mr. Peasant dude come and trying to steal your your stuff. So. so so this is Dungeon Keeper Mario Kart. Kind of. Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's it's yeah. Dungeon Lords, uh, if you're into board games and you like the concept of Dungeon Keeper, I'd say definitely check it out. Um, so I, I would say actually the the modern successor that is what I sort of wanted from Dungeon Keeper is RimWorld. Um, it doesn't have mm. the fantasy of being the bad guy, although you kind of can you know build sort of an evil colony. But it does have the I'm digging out these rooms and trying to plan out how big each room can be and trying to manage all these different people that might not get along with one another. So I think there is some some Dungeon Keeper DNA that kind of goes through into games that are not just Dungeon Keeper clones. Uh, uh, real quick, just. How much do you think it matters for like the the the, the mythology that built up around this game? The uh, apparently like mass hallucination that this is like an all time classic that definitely deserves like two hundred spiritual successors. Um, how much of this do you think is to do with just that entire nineties thing of the Attitude Era? Uh, like the reason imperialism is being like civilization is for nerds. This is a real like brutal like fatality Latin strategy yeah. game. Like how much of 
Dungeon Keeper success is the fact that like it is the most '90s thing ever, right? And it's super Peter Molyneux, like super Bullfrog, like well, the, you're the there's bad that guy. Also, that's a that's a huge amount of the 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 emotional investment that people has is this is from the classic era of Peter Molyneux when you know I think he actually got taken off this game. This game was like in <laughs> a development hell for a couple of years, but it was initially a Peter Molyneux says you're the bad guy. You're gonna be like playing an rpg but from the wrong side and it ended up becoming a much more generic strategy game than sort of the initial evil rpg idea but there is there's a whole bunch of like this is the great bullfog era of magic carpet and all that i can just imagine what his original design doc was you can watch your evil goatee grow (laughs) (laughs) and when the hero gets to the center of the dungeon there will be something very special I can't tell you what it is yet. <laughs> okay, anyway, it uh, shouldn't be mean about Peter Molyneux on a 1997 show. Um, but yeah, I think the art design is important. It's it's got it's got a very strong sense of style. Um, it does some of it is very awkwardly edgy, and it's like awkwardly edgy combined with Monty Python esque humor, which is very 90s and pretty embarrassing today. But yeah. You know, they're they're sucky by walking around cracking their whips at bad guys and stuff. Right. Does Theme Hospital even hold it? Like, does is, is a management game? Does this even like? Does anyone does anyone here like get like you know just does, does Theme this Theme Hospital of this day get anyone's toe tapping? Uh, thinking I, about I just think it's it. so weird. Like, so that you have this entire like sub sub genre of theme park games, uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon and Theme Park. And theme hospitals, like, okay, we're going to spin off from theme hospital, and instead of building roller coasters, you're going to, you know, create ICUs. And this was a thing. <laughs> this is still a thing. What the, what is a uh, what is prison architect? But this, like, yeah, you want to manage something that's not very fun. Initially, it started as a fun genre, and then it goes off in this weird direction. I don't remember if I played this one much at all. Um, I just. I just think that it's a fascinating way that that particular niche went. So no strong okay. advocates for that. Uh, <laughs> so Dun- Dungeon I, I, Keeper. I missed, I missed it entirely. Yeah. I it's mean, one of those that the Brits always really liked. Like when I was doing PC Gamer Top 100 stuff, it would always pop up and we'd be like, what's Theme Hospital? It's like, oh, something the UK guys voted for. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I mean the the only other game here that could compete is Final Fantasy Tactics, and that is difficult for you think it's, you think that, various reasons. Well, we we did a whole show on Final Fantasy Tactics, and I had played it for the first time for that show, and I liked it. I really like the ideas in it. I think the first Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, okay we're doing this yeah Um, (laughs) i think the first final fantasy tactics is super duper unbalanced in ways that i just cannot stand um it has things like suddenly you're in a one-on-one fight with just your hero unit and if you had your hero unit as a white mage which is the healing class in final fantasy because that's i don't know that our audience has played that much final fantasy but uh if you have it as a white mage you're screwed you don't you can't do damage um it also has a ton of 
it's also built on this like kind of XCOM Darkest Dungeon like idea of you know you're built slowly building up a, a crew of characters, um, but then it also drops in these hero units that are way po- more powerful than the characters you've slowly been building up. So the the balance issues create serious problems for me. Uh, I like the uh, the Game Boy Advance and uh, DS versions of it better, although. Um, Every time I say this, people are like, oh, but the plot is so good and dark in Final Fantasy Tactics. And it is. Uh, it just, I, I can't get past my balance issues with it. <laughs> is there is there anything more JRPG than, like, you've lovingly created this character and leveled him up for dozens of hours, but now we're bringing in this guy, and we made him up, and he's a total badass, and he's going to make <laughs> you look like an idiot. <laughs> I, I mean, like they bring in Cloud from Final Fantasy yeah, VII uh-huh. to do exactly that in Final Fantasy <laughs> yeah, Tactics. Uh-huh. He's a he's a uh, secret character. Uh, would you would you like? Do you think Final Fantasy Tactics is best understood as a management game more than a like ta- like tactics game? I mean, the tactics are strong. I I was just saying, like we're we're wrapping this up. Yeah. We're we're out we're out oh, of strategy games. You just want to give a little shout out. Is what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. This is. Yeah. This is a game. It came out in Japan, as we mentioned earlier, so it's '98 in America. But it is a, it is a game that is well worth discussing as an important tactical game of the era. Real quick, um, just outside of strategy, what was everyone's like favorite game of this year? Like '97 is a classic year. Like, so, so we mentioned some of the competitors here. I, I mean, actually, I actually, my top two were Age of Empires and Total Annihilation, which we've both already talked about. Man, I love how much of a uh, strategy nerd you are. I know. Uh, the the <laughs> ones that's old too. The the ones on my top five that aren't strategy were FF Seven, Mega Man Legends, and Dark Forces Two. Yeah, yeah. So th- this is also one of the absolute best years for first person shooters with Jedi Knight and Quake Two. Um, Jedi Knight is Dark Forces Two, in case you don't yeah know that because um, no two Golden games Eye. were ever allowed to have the same name. <laughs> uh there's also goldeneye um Turok, stuff like that uh but uh on pc especially uh jedi knight was my favorite for a long ass time but these days i am entirely on the fallout train uh fallout is just a monumental achievement and it, i i don't sh- think jedi knight holds up like i loved that game and for its era it is brilliant uh it what like had Half-Life not come along and changed people's expectations, I think, of what shooter campaigns would look like so soon after. Uh, I think it would stand out a little bit more. Uh, and again, uh, some real choice uh, Star yeah. Wars-themed FMV uh, oh, in, yeah. in Jedi Knight. Jarek uh, Jarek was the greatest villain. <laughs> uh, the, the, other, uh, the other thing with Jedi Knight is where I was talking about how... The, the sort of RTS interface was becoming standardized. The first-person shooter interface was not standardized yet. Best played with uh, keyboard only. Uh, I best I played it with a flight stick. And wow. The lightsaber, the lightsaber battles are infinitely superior with a joystick. Um, keyboard and mouse, that. they are a total mess. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a mess. Uh, so I, I loved it. Jedi Knight 2 is way easier to play. Jedi Academy is probably the best of the series to play these days. Yeah. Jedi Knight 2 is Knight... so wild, though, man. Like, it starts out as a pure shooter, and then they give you force powers, and by the end it is turned into a totally different game, where you're barely yeah. using so, uh, weapons at all. The the especially weird thing about that is that it is the only first-person shooter that ever has given me motion sickness, and it has those five levels at the start that you have to play 
as a first person shooter. So I, I can never like truly love Jedi Knight too. But. Uh, I can't uh, just last thing about Jedi Knight two. And you remember the falling ship level? That's Jedi Knight one. But yeah, that, that thing, I, I ended up finding cheat codes and skipping. I was sorry. This is Jedi Knight one. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's dark forces too. Jedi Knight one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By God the way, bless the 90s. 97 as an honorable mention was also the year of Diddy Kong Racing, which is the better Mario Kart game mm-hmm. than any of the Mario Kart games. Danielle Riando yeah, would one Mario Kart there. with a story campaign. So um, wait, uh, this is also the year of Ultima Online, Riven, yeah. and uh Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which is definitely yeah. a top-tier game. Uh and also like, look, a game we've talked about on the show before, and I I will it's it still holds up. It's still still an all time classic. The Last Express, yeah, uh, yeah. A, a singular game. Between the Last Express and the Curse of Monkey Island, this is like really the tail end of the the truly great uh, adventure game era. And when people are just signing massive checks over to adventure game developers to like chase <laughs> their dream, uh, <laughs> the Last Express is like, yeah, you want to spend uh, a few million dollars on on FMV and then rotoscope all of it to the point where it's barely animated. Sounds good. <laughs> Sign us up. Uh, Try any, anything uh, on on the general generalist list here that uh, that that really resonated with you. I think you've gone through all the big ones for me. Um, there's not. I was. I'm a specialist at this point. Um, I mean, it's X-wing versus Tie Fighter probably deserves a mention. Yeah, not the. It's not one of the. I, I think it's. I I liked those games a lot. I liked them more than the Wing Commander games. Um, and I think they're better flight those, games. Yeah, I think those are the games that people I want like to Wing come Commander. back. So yeah, and Parappa the Rapper. Gotta give a shout out to that. <laughs> Because you gotta believe it's you know it's uh one of my best friend's favorite games. I mean, I've never played it, but it, it's it's got a unique look to it. Uh, people still pass around um videos of the songs, which are all awful, but supposed <laughs> to be, I think. Uh, so it's 1997 is just really this outstanding year. Um, probably one of the best years I think in video game history. I would say it's easily like a top three in strategy games, and it's got a pretty strong case for best ever overall, though there are a few others that all around it, like every every game from every year from like 94 to 2002 has a really strong case, but uh, this is stands out even above for those because of Fallout, which is the best game of the year. So I'm going to have a change.org petition up by the end of the show to get GOG to figure out how to emulate Sid Meier's Gettysburg. And I actually hopefully, <laughs> rescue, I hope it's rights thing is straightened out, but God only knows. Yeah. I, um, I don't know what rights would not be in there. Maybe it's some sort of technical thing. Well, Firaxis owned it, but then who published it? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. And now they're with 2K, so I don't know where well, the rights can, lie. Can you just do a remake that's like Sid Meier's, you know, I don't know, Arlington, Virginia or something. It's just like a slight reskin that, you know, wink, wink. Yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> I, I got to believe I talked you to Greg Forch years later and, and Greg Forch said it was still his favorite uh, game that he'd worked on. He's the longtime art director over at uh, Firaxis and like. When I talked to him about 2012, this was, he was like, yeah, I, th- I still think the best we've ever, 
like nailed it in terms of like art and design working together is um is Gettysburg. Um yeah, I think for me the the in terms of like what what the best game of that year overall was um I think for me it would, like in things that hold up that I would like go and play enthusiastically today is between the last express and fallout. If I we're playing, if we're going by playing enthusiastically I would say Symphony of the Night probably is. That one you can just pick up and play anytime now. It's always fantastic. But What's the best platform for Symphony of the Night these days? It's on Xbox. Uh, I don't know how great the port is. Yeah. Uh, it's, I presume Another it's on PlayStation soundtrack. as well. Since, yeah. yeah. I can uh, definitely go back and play older Castlevania games easier than I can go back and play older Fallout games. Yeah, I, I, Fallout. Yeah. Fallout had a, a difficult interface when it came out, and that that hasn't gotten better. It's it's you can break through. It's like playing a paradox game these days. Like, okay, after about an hour of this, I figured out like these are what these buttons are actually supposed to do, and you have people saying, "Oh, actually, in order to give items to your party members, you need to steal from them." So if you have <laughs> someone who's doing that with Fallout, you can get a lot further. But the only thing, yeah. So I mean, for me, I guess like. It would be between The Last Express and Fallout. Um, I would probably choose The Last Express. Like I recently played Fallout 1, and it's great, and a lot of it holds up surprisingly well. But it is still like a laborious thing to play in a way The Last Express is not. Uh, on the other hand, The Last Express definitely requires a, a walkthrough open uh, at any moment. Oh, so, does, so does Fallout, really, at several key points. Like when I accidentally radiation poisoned myself fatally and didn't realize why. Because you're in a post-apocalyptic world, Rob. Look, just advice for everybody. Do not sit in an irradiated bunker playing chess (laughs) against a super intelligent computer for hours on end. Uh, Final Fantasy VII. Most people that get fatal radiation poisoning don't know until it's too late. Uh, Final Fantasy VII, I think, is a game that you can pick up and play still. Uh, It you should probably play that and not wait for the remake, which sounds like it's going to be a disaster. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. It's not going to be Final Fantasy VII, that's for sure. I, it's I grindy. Have... It's really grindy by modern standards, but otherwise I'd agree with you. Yeah, there, there are some quirks to it uh, in bad ways, but most of the quirks are really interesting in ways that games have moved away from. Like, it's all these Dutch angles where every game these days is camera over the shoulder and uh yeah it's it, it's very much of its time but as long as you like go in saying you know this is going to be a little bit awkward i think it's totally playable these days and yet it's still just final fantasy 7 uh yeah it's it's which... not my favorite final fantasy but i have come to love it after playing it like four times and eventually figuring out like it's not the plot that everyone talks about that's really good it's the style and the mechanics all right. Uh so yeah, I think that will that will do it for for that year and this week. Uh we'll be back next week with I think we've got the uh the Endless Space 2 uh conversation coming up. Everyone's been taking a little bit of time to to get back up to speed uh with that one. Uh so we'll have that for you next week. Uh Through Moves Ahead is produced as always by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Addle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at ThreeMovesAhead.net. Or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Through Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode. 
Until then, for Rowan, Troy, and TJ, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. Oh, man. Okay, well, Rowan, I'm assuming you're going to shit on Dungeon Keeper for us, right? Uh, you you got me. <laughs> you're gonna, what you brought me in for. You're going to carry the take to Mordor? Rowan, your master list doesn't even have Mega Man Legends, and I feel like this is a big problem. <laughs> is it, TJ? Is it? Does Mega Man belong on any fucking list except, like, most overrated of its Mega year? Mega Man Legends is the best Mega Man game, and Great. I die on that Great. Good. No, it was like an open world. Yeah. It was like an archeo- it was like an archaeology. What the fuck game. am I looking at here, dude? Like you were going <laughs> into caves to like find these artifacts, and there was like this alien race that showed up, and you had to figure out. Yeah, it was like it was set in like a town. Like the main hub was like a town, but it was like a big town. Okay. Uh, sure. This <laughs> this is a game. Uh, the CJ, I will take your, I will take your word. For the fact that this is a great game. We're outgunned. That's exactly how you're going to feel when you try to debate Mega Man Legends with me. All right. Well. <laughs> I, All right. I hope you've still got the master recording for this, I, because I think this is a... I sure hope so, too. <laughs>